Good afternoon, Park Street Church. It's great to be with you and want to invite you to go with me in a word of prayer. Lord, as we spend a few moments reflecting on your words, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to move, to touch, to connect with us, to break the chains that you need to break not in order to break us, but to free us. We pray that you would bring your freedom with a new perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you could be here with us, you'd see that there's almost nobody in the sanctuary with me. And I suppose as a, as a pastor and as a preacher, we really should have an audience of one. But this is a little bit ridiculous. It wasn't supposed to quite be that way. We're dealing with a lot of change, aren't we? Change in the church, change in our careers, change in our family life, change in our neighborhood, change in society. Change. It seems to be going on everywhere. I don't know if you heard in the news on Tuesday, Tom Brady announced that he was changing teams. He left the New England Patriots after 20 seasons and is now going to be the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's change. Now, in normal times, that would have, we would have riots in the street. But there's change, and then there's change. And uh, we're dealing, really, with the latter. Significant disruption. Something that, uh, well, I remember Tracy and I were on our honeymoon when 9-11 happened. That was change. But this is nothing like that change in every possible way, major disruption to our lives. Really, it's unthinkable, and it it came out of nowhere. It's seemingly all of a sudden someone snapped their fingers, and everything has come to a screeching halt, and we're dealing with this new reality. And it feels, I don't know how you're feeling, but it can feel a little grim. Maybe you're feeling anxious, There's a lot of unknowns, and we honestly, we don't know how long this is going to be. This could be the new normal for weeks, maybe into months. And we have to get ready for change. Got me thinking as we were reflecting on Mark chapter 13, we were continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and Julian preached this morning on Mark chapter 12, and here we are in Mark chapter 13, which is a a text dealing with end times, and uh, it, it seems convenient and appropriate that we'd be thinking about these things. Maybe your mind has been going in that direction a little bit because it feels almost apocalyptic. Now, I'm just going to focus, this is a big text, and I'm only going to focus on a couple verses to give you a sense of what's going on in, in, in Mark 13, especially in verses 1 and 2. We would need several sessions together in order to work through this gospel, but I think there are some really important points that we can take home today in regard to the question of change, and I want to lay out three lessons, three lessons about this issue of change, change that is, whether we like it or not, and most of us don't like change, change that's slapping us in the face. So three lessons coming out of Mark 13, and the first lesson is this, is that change is part of life. Change 
is part of life. Look at verse 1 with me. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And I thought it would be helpful because I really didn't know much about the temple, so I've, I've spent the, uh, some time this week learning about the temple in Jerusalem in the first century, and, and it helps explain why this disciple was saying this to Jesus. The temple. If you know anything about the temple, there actually, the temple came, first there was the tabernacle in which God was intense traveling with Israel uh, through the wilderness. Eventually they came into the promised land. And then under David, David desired to build a temple, but God had David's son, Solomon, build the temple. And the first temple was built by Solomon in approximately 950 B.C. And uh, you can see a little timeline here in which Solomon's temple built in 950 B.C. And then in 587 B.C. was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then about 50 years later, uh, the temple was rebuilt under the uh, invitation of the Persian Emperor Cyrus and Zerubbabel. It's typically called Zerubbabel's temple. It was a smaller version of Solomon's temple, but built in the same location. And we have Zerubbabel's temple, which went all the way to about 20 BC. And then under Herod, who was the, the, the king of the time uh, before Jesus, Herod basically rebuilt, the, the temple was existing, it hadn't been destroyed, but in about 20 BC, he began to rebuild the temple into a far more magnificent uh, a building there on Mount Zion. And here is a, a, a rendition of what that temple would have looked like. The temple was approximately, if you look uh, on the Temple Mount on Mount Zion, this whole area is about 25 football fields large. It's huge. And it had beautiful buildings. And because it's on a mount, on a, on a, uh, on a small mountain, uh, these were four retaining walls that were built up so that they could create one single uh, flat surface on the top. And on the back side, facing the old Jerusalem, this is called the Western Wall, if you can see my mouse. The walls were amazing. They were huge. And of course, the disciple says, look, teacher, what massive stones. And it was. It was the whole temple complex. Was, it was solid. It was massive. It was, it was ornate. It, it, was, it served as the very anchor for all of Israel. And the southern walls were almost 130 feet tall. The eastern wall was 160 feet uh, tall. These are the, these retaining walls that got filled in. There were tunnels under, underneath, and this is the outside of, of one of the walls. And there are huge pieces of, of limestone. In fact, you can't quite tell, but it looks like a bunch of small stones, but this is actually a picture of one single stone that uh, it's called the uh, it's one of the stones at 45 feet long and here's a, a picture of from the interior of a tunnel this is a picture of a single stone uh, it's it's called the western stone it's 45 feet long limestone it's 11 feet high and it's approximately six to eight feet deep that's huge that's an amazing 
work of engineering that these things were able as a single stone brought and, and, and put into place. Estimates of this particular stone are something like 560 tons. And you can do the math on how, uh, how big that is. On the top of the, uh, the Temple Mount uh, were multiple buildings, including this uh, on the left-hand side. On the, on the southern side of, of the Temple Mount was this tremendous basilica that was built by Herod. Uh, it had uh, 162 columns. The columns were, were massive. They were 45, 47 feet tall, five feet in diameter. And then there was this uh, portico or uh, the central roof with, within the basilica. Uh, and that was another uh, uh, 50 feet tall. So you would go into this open air basilica with these massive stone columns. And uh, at least some believe that's where, where when Jesus in Mark chapter 11 cleared the temple, uh, that the, much of the market was going on under uh, this basilica. But the real marvel was the temple itself. And here we have a, a rendition of what Herod's temple in the first century looked like. There you can see in the front is the, uh, this is called the Court of the Women, where Jewish men and women were allowed. Gentiles were not, we talked about this last week, Gentiles were not allowed in this area. They could only stay in the, the court of the Gentiles on the outside. They were forbidden to enter into this area. And then one could go through the, the Nicanor gate right here where my mouse is pointing and then go inside this other interior court where only men were, Jewish men were allowed and then the priests. But then the most amazing building of all was the temple complex itself. The, uh, the estimates are that the temple itself was 172 feet tall, which in modern terms is an 18-story building. So this is not some small little building. It was massive. From a distance, those who are journeying to Jerusalem who would see it from the east often thought that, the, that Mount Zion was a was a snow-capped mountain because of all the white limestone consisting of the walls and the temple. And then it had uh, these golden plates. You can see the golden plates at the very top of the temple, as well as all around. And in the morning light, the sun would reflect on it, and it would be dazzling for those that were traveling and, and seeing it. So you get a sense that this was an amazing, an amazing piece of architecture. The stones were gigantic. The, it was beautiful, and it was the very center of Jewish culture. The here are the priests, and here are the sacrifices, and this is where the government often was integrated with. And this is, was the glue that, in many ways, kept the people together. But Lotus, in response to this uh, disciple, what does Jesus say in verse 2? He says, do you see all these great buildings? And of course, Jesus is agreeing. They are great buildings. He replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And so in 70 AD, because of the oppression of the Romans, the, Ro the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people revolted in 66 AD, and they, for a, a short time, were able to push out the Romans. 
uh, but the Romans were, of course, were far more po powerful. And then in 69 and then in 70 AD, uh, the general Titus, who eventually became emperor of, of Rome, he uh, laid siege to the entire city. Uh, and eventually, uh, the Jewish troops uh, lost. The temple was plundered and it was set on fire. Titus offered unconditional surrender to, to the Jewish people, but they refused, and there was a major slaughter of all the Jewish soldiers. And then in 70 AD, that, uh, Titus ordered that the entire walls of Jerusalem would be set on fire and, and destroyed, and then the temple itself was utterly razed to the ground. 100,000 Jewish prisoners in 71 AD were taken to Rome. And it was a destruction, utter destruction, of what seemed invincible. And to those that were there, these magnificent stones, this amazing, all of these amazing social structures that held their entire culture together, in a few short moments was brought down by fire and then literally stone by stone the Roman soldiers who historians tell us were in a rage utterly laid the city and particularly the Temple Mount into desolation. Nothing was left. Not a single building on the Temple Mount was left. Every stone, as you can see in this picture, was thrown down. And here we have a picture of modern-day Temple Mount. The, the walls are still in existence. There you can see the Dome of the Rock, which is second most holy site for, for Muslims, which has been put where uh, the Jewish temple was, and everything else had been laid desolate. And it has been that way for nearly 2,000 years. Wow. Surprising that Jesus spoke these words some 40 or so years before they happened. And sure enough, what seemed unbreakable what seemed so powerful and sure, what seemed unchangeable, was changed and brought down. Now, I do want to take a moment, and, and you might not be able to see this slide very well, but this is a picture of Mark chapter 13. And it's interesting. I, I think it's important uh, to, because Mark chapter 13 is a little bit confusing because it starts off with the destruction of the temple and then it goes into these end time events. And, you're gonna, and when you read the chapter, uh, at least initially, it can, be, it can seem very confusing and you have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Uh, one particular commentator uh, who many of these sermons have been informed by for uh, myself and Chris and Julian as we've been going through Mark, uh, has uh, really laid out Mark chapter 13, and I thought, in a very helpful way. And you can see this chapter structure in which... Verses 1 through 13 begin with the temple, and then 14 through 27 is talking about the events around the second coming, and then verses 28 through 31 go back to talking about the temple, temple, and then the chapter ends again by talking about the end time second coming. And one of the linguistic keys to, uh, to this is that the, Jesus goes back and forth between talking about, he uses the word, these things, and those days. And if you follow along between, especially in the Greek, between these things and those days, it leads to this 
understanding that the, the text in, in Jesus' words is going back and forth between the temple and its coming destruction in that generation to the end time event that Jesus is referring to around his second coming. And if you understand this particular structure, it, I think it helps unlock some of the confusion that lies around Mark chapter 13. Well, why would Jesus do this? Why would he uh, talk about the, uh, and that's the end of our slides, why would he talk about uh, this in which, in which the temple and the end time events are uh, somehow related with, with one another? And, and I think the answer is, is they actually are related. The temple itself was a representation of creation. And you can see that creation is being undone. It's an end of a major error. And it's related because the temple represents creation. It is being undone. Even so, then Jesus, in the same sort of thinking, can then talk about the end time events because the temple and end time events, since they both are about the order of creation, are being, and how they are being brought to uh, an end. And so the temple, in a sense, foreshadows. The destruction of the temple foreshadows the end of the, new or the old heavens and the old earth. And that's why thematically they're interrelated with one another. And it's why Jesus in Mark chapter 13 talks about them both. Now, I'm not going to talk about end time events tonight. I'm just going to talk about the temple because there seems to me to be something really important for our very mo in this very moment for us to be considering. The temple was amazing. It was strong. It was seemingly unchanging, and yet that was all a fiction. It was torn down. The social structures were torn apart. Everything that seemed to be cohesive became unglued. And it certainly got me thinking that that's what it has felt like recently, right? And we begin to realize what seemed unbelievably sure in a few moments has become undone. Wall Street, which has seemed, wow, it's just, it can't get any better than this. Or maybe, we'll, maybe it will get better. Who knows? 30,000 points. What's going to happen to the Dow tomorrow? Maybe we'll go up a little bit higher. And in a few short days, look what has happened to the Dow. Look what has happened to our life. It's amazing. And it's not just us in a local area. It's all over. None of us could have thought, if you had said this two months ago, none of us could have believed that this would be coming to America or to Boston. And yet, the temple in this teaching of Jesus is a reminder that all of life is transient. It's ephemeral. It's like the wind that comes and it goes. It's a lesson that we have to understand that life is not an illusion, but it is illusory to believe that life is, is permanent, that we can, in an ongoing way, depend upon it. It's not true. It was never, ever true before. We just thought it because it seemed that way. But the curtain has been taken back, and now we're beginning to see that the reality of our culture the reality of the life that we built. It's good. It's wonderful. But it is not permanent. 
Change is simply part of life because life itself, the way it is constructed, is transient. Most of us don't want to believe that. Most of us act as if it's not true, that it's permanent. But the reality is, and as we've begun to see even over the last few weeks, we've gotten to taste the reality that life is not permanent. It says in James chapter 4, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. James says in James 4, why you do not even know what, to, what will happen tomorrow. It's interesting. He, he says, go to this or that city. Travel has been disrupted. Spend a year there. A lot of our planning for the future has been disrupted. Carry on business. A lot of our jobs and careers have been deeply disrupted. And make money. The whole economic system, for so many of us, has been disrupted. We can't say tomorrow, today or tomorrow that we're going to do these things. James says, he continues, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, he says, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's up to the Lord. It's in his hands. It's in the Lord's hands. And so as we plan for the future, it's good to plan for the future, but we cannot imagine, we should not begin to imagine that these things are going to be the way they are forever. That's not the reality that we're living in. And so we're called to, to recognize that reality. There's a story of an old Eastern king, and he said to his wise men, to create for me a sentence, which is always true in every circumstance and at every time. And they came and they presented him the phrase, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And of course, it, the phrase has a double meaning to it, right? Because if things are going great, you need to be warned that the good times are going to come to an end. This too shall pass. But it's also words of consolation. As we go through hard times, this too shall pass. But it's true of all, of all of life. Life is but a vapor. It is but grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so we have to live our lives recognizing that reality. So we first lesson around change is that change is just part of life. It's intrinsic to it. You must recognize that. But here's the second lesson about change. It's that God in Christ does not change. It's that God in Christ does not change. He says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. By the way, there's many claims in which Jesus himself is claiming to be God, and here's just one of many examples. He says, my words will not pass away. Whose words will not pass away? Only God's words, as we read even in our call to worship. Only God's words will not pass away. But Jesus says, my words will not pass away. And here is just one of the many claims in which he is showing to us that he is God. The reality is, is that everything 
is temporary. The temple, this life, you and me. But God, God will not pass away. Quoting out of Isaiah, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. That's an incredible encouragement because if we only focus on the the fact that life will change, it will undo us. It will fill us with so much anxiety. And perhaps that's how you've been feeling, stressed and anxious over all the change that has been forced upon you and upon me. And if we only keep our minds there, we will feel undone. But there is this incredible encouragement that Jesus himself Jesus in, in Christ, Christ in God, does not change. And it's a reminder that this is his very character. It's part of his very attributes. God does not change. It says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His nature does not change. His will does not change. His character does not change. In Psalm 136, it says his steadfast love endures how long? forever. No, see, God in Christ does not change. And this is an incredible promise. In the midst of everything swirling around us, we can fix our gaze on the single one who does not change, and it is God himself. I know you've heard this. If you've ever been in church at all, you've heard these sorts of things. Maybe this is a new idea to you, but I know for most of us, we've heard it. But now it's time in your emotions and in your practices to truly believe it. Because our habit is to attach ourselves, to attach our desires to things that do change. That seems to be our pattern, certainly my pattern. The desire for things not to change is actually a good desire. Generally, we desire for things not to change, which is why when change does come, it's so difficult for us. We desire for things not to change, and I think that is a a reminder to us that that is a God-given desire for us to put our hope, to put our trust in him who does not change. Our desire for things to stay the same is actually a desire for God, a desire to be connected to him in his stability, in his security, in his unchanging way. But what happens is we oftentimes take that desire and misplace it on things that do change. And when they do, we become unhinged and undone. And most of us, I probably everyone has been feeling that way one way or another because none of us have perfect desire connected to God alone. And so we become aware we become more aware of ourselves and our need to put our, to put our faith, to put our hope, to put our trust, to put our love, to put our desires on him. Because he alone will not change. His word will not change. He's unmovable and he's unshakable. And so we have to, we have to stay connected to him. That's the gospel put it in another way, but it's the gospel. Everything swirls but him. So where are you today? What have you been hoping in? What have you been trusting in? Is that anxiety part of the insecurity that you've been been feeling? 
Look at your life, and here is just another opportunity. Even in the midst of these things that we could not have imagined, to put faith in him who will not change. And so the first lesson is change is a part of life, and the second lesson is that God in Christ does not change. And then very quickly, a third lesson about change that comes out of this text and out of Mark is that change always holds a spiritual opportunity. Change, when it comes, always holds a spiritual opportunity. You see, when God ended the temple, he just didn't end it. He ended it for a reason. Why? Because he was bringing something better. He was bringing a better temple in Jesus Christ. He just wasn't judging it. It had served its purposes as a shadow pointing to a greater temple. And so when the real temple, the better temple in Jesus Christ came, we didn't need the old shadows. And so when change came, something better was embedded within it. But you know, not everyone recognized that, did they? Change for some was a major threat. In fact, when Jesus was teaching about these things, in chapter 11, verse 18, Jesus, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard what Jesus was saying, and they began looking for a way to kill him. Jesus was a change agent. And when they saw that change, they did not want to have anything to do with it because they were holding on to the old. They wanted the old to continue. They didn't want this new thing, in fact... It's interesting. Imagine yourself as a, a skilled mason. And here someone gave you a, a wonderful stone, and they said, here's a stone. And you looked at it, and you turned it around, and you, you tested it. And then you said, no, you actually threw it away. You're, you're a skilled mason. You know, you know stone. You threw it away and said, this is worthless. I can't do anything with this stone. And in chapter 12, Jesus says, in verse 10 and 11, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus was the new stone for the new temple. And the builders saw it, and they said, no, this is junk. We can't do anything with it. And yet, here was the end time stone for the new temple of God much better than the old, and yet they could not see it. And change often has that dynamic. Embedded within it is a spiritual opportunity for something good to come about. But because we're holding on to the old, it blinds us so that we can't see it. We get, we get blinded by our fear of that change, or we get filled with anger, or there's some kind of pride within us, or... That old way gives us a strong sense of security and we can't imagine this new way somehow being better. But that's the nature of change, is that if we're willing to deal with the reality of change, we can't get around it, we can either, well, we can either just be filled with dour spirits and think about suicide, or we could actually deal with what's happening. Because suicide isn't the answer. 
running away, it's not even plausible. We have to face this change. And I believe the promise of the gospel is that there is something amazingly good. Good. Now, how can we talk about something good with COVID-19? Isn't COVID-19 an evil? Yeah, it is. It's part of the fall. It's not part of God's intention. It's not his, part of his desire for us because it's a result of our fallen nature and its effects upon, upon nature. Nevertheless, there's still spiritual opportunity even with the change that evil brings because evil cannot, no matter what the evil is, it cannot thwart the will of God in the good that he is going to bring. I don't know how it all works. It's, there's a mysterious interaction between human free will and the evil that often comes by our own actions and even COVID-19. We're partly at least responsible in our own social practices. Human free will and God's sovereign will, somehow they're perfectly compatible in which God's human freedom is preserved, or man's human freedom is preserved, and yet, and here's the truth I want, to, want you to focus on, God in his providence ensures that exactly the good that he desires will come about, even within the midst of these evil circumstances. And it's a promise that we read in Romans chapter 8, verses that many of us have known and memorized. And we know, Paul says, that in all things... Not some things, but all things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Paul doesn't say that all things are good. And we can't say that all the things we, that are happening to us, all of these changes are good. They're not. They're terribly hard. And we're all struggling. Most of us are certainly struggling. But the promise of the scriptures is that God is doing something out of this evil. And he wants to bring about, even in the evil, a spiritual opportunity for each one of us. But you have to believe. You have to let go of the expectations that you have had and give yourself over to what's new. New that's not entirely something that we can be cheerful about. And yet within it, God must be doing something in your life, perhaps in your family's life, perhaps in your work, perhaps in the church, perhaps in our society. Maybe this disruption will serve amazingly good purposes if we're willing to let go of the old and embrace what he has for us. Well, let me just close with a personal story. I went through a major change when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I had been working for a number of years really hard at wanting to go to graduate school, do a doctorate degree. And part of my own story is that I failed three times in getting into doctoral studies. Three different years, three different series of applications. And that third time was really hard. It, it was something that I had trouble expecting because I believed that that's what I was supposed to do. And I was thrown uh, for a great loop <laughs> because I didn't know what to do. 
my sense of identity was obliterated, and I didn't know what direction I was going in. It was a really difficult time. And uh, I turned to the job that, was, that I could do at that time, uh, which was uh, doing construction work with, with my brother. My brother's a talented carpenter. I can't do carpentry. And so I did what an assistant would do. I cleaned things. I, I was a great demo person. I could knock down walls and tear them down and, and carry them into the dumpster. And I did that day in and day out, filthy from uh, all the demo work. That was my work for months and months and months. It was hard. And I didn't enjoy it because I didn't feel called to it. It was, it was pay, helping pay the bills, but it's not what I wanted. I would even was uh, remembering today that sometimes I would go to a, a party. When I remember going to it during this time, a Christmas party uh, for Tracy's work, my wife's work. And uh, it was a fancy party with all the fancy people dressed up. And of course, you don't know people, and they always ask, what, what do you do? And I was, always felt this great amount of shame that I could I would say, well, I'm a, I do construction work. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not who I understood myself to be. It's not where I was, thought I would be going. But this was the change that had been brought to me. But then God, I realized, during a, a time of spiritual depression and struggle, that this change, as terrible and as hard as it was, was God's work in me. And that he was doing something. He was reforming me and changing my own identity. Because I had been chasing things for myself. And he, had said, he was saying no to me. And he was, he was calling me to place my identity and my mission and my purpose in him. Regardless of my job. Regardless of title and direction and, and, and sense of prestige. It was all, that was all undone. And it was, as I look back one of the most important seasons in my life. I wouldn't wish it on others, but God did an amazing thing. He brought, in that change, a spiritual opportunity. And it's shaped the rest of my life. So what about you? You're facing change. This is not easy. It's going to get harder. Will you look to the Lord, recognizing that this world is transient, that he is unchanging and worthy of your trust, and that there is something embedded in the circumstances around you in which God is going to bring about something better than the ways it was before. If you put your faith in him, as I've experienced, I believe you and many others have, you will experience that. Lord Jesus, we pray for help. We pray that this dramatic change would end. But Lord, since we're here, and now that we're in the midst of it, we ask for your help. I ask for help over my brothers and sisters, that you would give them strength, and that you would whisper in their ear that you are present and haven't left, Lord, that they would see how unchanging you are. And Lord, that you would grant an amazing promise that you are there and you are doing a work in our life. 
Lord, we ask that you would do it in our church's life, in all of our society, in the way countries relate to one another, in our family life, in our careers and individual life. Lord, this is change. But we pray that you would do something marvelous, something marvelous in your eyes and in ours, and we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.